Thank you very much, Cass. And I want to thank the elders of ECC for inviting me to preach to you this morning, and more than that, uh, for taking the initiative to bring the Gulf Theological Seminary here uh, to Abu Dhabi. Uh, I'm just thrilled to be standing here. I can hardly believe that I'm here. I, in my mind, I'm a little kid that grew up in rural Canada. In fact, uh, when I got here, Jonathan at the back, who works in the sound booth, he was putting this microphone on me, and he's also from Canada, uh, also from Ontario. In fact, we grew up 15 minutes from each other. Uh, so what are the chances of that? Here we are in Abu Dhabi, uh, serving in different ways uh, together. And so I was thankful to meet him. And uh, just the way God works in each of our lives is, is truly amazing. Uh, for me, thinking about the return of Christ, which we're going to look at today, has been one of the greatest blessings of my life. And I hope that I'll be able to go through the Word of God with you and, and help you to see that, that the, the great promise that Jesus is returning will sustain us every day until that day. But just as Paul begins 2 Thessalonians, along with Silvanus and Timothy, to give greetings to the Thessalonians, so also I stand here and bring you greetings from the Redeemer Church of Dubai and from Gulf Theological Seminary. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul goes on and he gives thanks for the Thessalonians because they were increasing in faith and growing in love for one another. So also, I give thanks to you because I hear from your pastors that you also are increasing in faith and growing in love toward one another. May your faith and your love continue to grow to the glory of God. So let's pray and then we'll take a look at today's text, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Heavenly Father, as we've just talked about the coming of Gulf Theological Seminary to Abu Dhabi, we are so thankful for the work you're doing here on the Arabian Peninsula. And we, we thank you that here in Abu Dhabi we can offer advanced seminary training for church leaders and pastors and church planters. God, I pray that you would bring students that we may help to equip them in service to the local church. As we transition now to taking a look at your, your word, I pray, Lord, that you would fill me with your spirit and help me to preach the word. Uh, help me to bring clarity to this text. Lord, help, help me to encourage uh, this church to take risks for the gospel and to endure suffering for Christ's sake. Lord Jesus, we pray that by your spirit, you would instruct us directly through your word. Help me not to get in the way of that. Lord Jesus, we do this because we pray for your glory to be known in this church, to be demonstrated in this church, and to be made known in this city and to the far reaches of the world. So Lord, please help us in this task. We depend on you entirely. In Jesus' name, amen. The greatest dream of my life I had several years back. Uh, I'm a dreamer. I dream a lot and I remember a lot of my dreams, but this dream stands out for me as the greatest dream I've ever had. And I think it was just a dream. I'm not here standing up and say I had a vision or anything. Uh, and you'll ex understand in a moment why I have to make that disclaimer. It's, it's just a dream that was informed by my reading of Scripture and what was ever going on in my subconscious and just what I was going through in life. And my dream was, I was at home where I grew up. And I grew up, as I said, in rural Ontario. So farmers' fields all around me. I had a big forest behind the house that I grew up in. And a pretty big front yard. Not sand, but grass. And I was out on the front of my house, in, on the lawn. And all of the trees were without leaves. So in North America, that means it's fall. It's starting to get cold, getting ready for a good Canadian winter. Uh, the corn in the field beside my house was full and ready to be harvested. And it was very gray. It was a very gray day with clouds, and there wasn't a lot of color in this dream. And then all of a sudden, all these birds came up out of the cornfield and filled all of the trees. The fields in the front lawn of my parents' house and the forest behind my parents' house, which was a sizable forest. So many birds that you couldn't even count them. And they were making all kinds of noise. 
They were very excited. And the trees were just shaking with birds so that it looked like there were leaves on the trees now. And they were chirping and singing and making a lot of noise. There was so much energy. I wondered, what is happening? Then I looked up in the sky and things turned from gray to kind of orange, like a, like a golden hue over everything that I was looking at. And I looked up into the clouds, and there was a ray of light that came through the clouds, and then I saw two angels swimming like dolphins in the sea through the clouds. I thought, oh, is Jesus coming back? And I looked, and I was gazing, I was hoping, and I was on my tippy toes, I was just wishing for this to happen, and then over the crest of the cloud, I saw the Lord Jesus in my dream. And in that moment, just so much energy coursed through my body. I was caught up in the air, and then I woke up. And I was never so sad to be awake and to find out it was all but a dream. I closed my eyes, and I tried to go back to sleep, but I couldn't. This is the greatest dream of my life. I don't pretend to say that it was prophetic in any way, shape, or form. The Bible is clear. No one knows the day or the hour. But it has encouraged me through so many difficult days. One of the reasons it is the greatest dream of my life is at that particular time, I was going through much suffering for the sake of Christ. I hadn't suffered to the point of shedding my blood, as Peter says. So it was minor suffering, actually, relative to what the saints have had to endure. But for me, it was very hard. It was very heavy. And it, some of the persecution was coming from within the church and some from without of the church. And I just felt burdened and weighed down by opposition to the gospel and to me personally. And so when I saw the Lord Jesus Christ coming, I, I felt myself being caught up to meet him in the air, which in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 talks about that. We're in the next letter. I was just so excited. And from that moment forward, even though my sufferings didn't change, my view of them did. The way I endured the suffering changed. That's exactly the point of the message this morning. That's exactly what Paul is trying to say in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 to us today. Sufferings are going to come. And to be clear, the direct application of this chapter is not generic suffering. We all suffer in many ways, but Paul's talking about suffering for the sake of Christ. You're suffering because you're a Christian. You're suffering because you love the Lord Jesus Christ. You're suffering because you are proclaiming the gospel. You're being persecuted because of that. So the suffering this morning that we're looking at is a very specific kind of suffering. And yet, I think that the principle holds that no matter what your suffering is, by thinking about the return of Christ, you can be comforted. You know, what's fascinating to me is First and Second Thessalonians, we don't even know which order they were sent in. Second Thessalonians might have come before First Thessalonians. I think there's a good argument to be made that it's the second letter to the Thessalonians. Um, but it's in the order in our Bibles because it's shorter than First Thessalonians. Paul's letters are ordered from longest to shortest. Um, so it, First and Second Thessalonians are the earliest books of the New Testament or perhaps Galatians. There's debate about that, but very early. Which means that when God started to write the New Testament, so until this point, it was just the Old Testament. But God said, we want to write down a New Testament for them. One of the first things that he dealt with was the return of Christ. That's true in 1 Thessalonians too. So whether or not 1 Thessalonians came first chronologically or not, one of the major themes of First and Second Thessalonians is the return of Christ. Isn't that interesting? From God's point of view, when he knew that his church needed Scripture, one of the things that we needed more than anything else was an assurance that Jesus is coming back. And so he is. This morning's preaching text, Second Thessalonians chapter 1, is a text in which Paul reminds the Thessalonians about the return of Christ in order to encourage them to endure in faith even though they're suffering difficult persecution because of Christ. Take a look at verse 4 of 2 Thessalonians. 
after giving thanks to the Thessalonians, he says, Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all of your persecutions and in the affliction that you are enduring. So at the very beginning here, he's saying, look, I want you to know that we're, we're, we're telling everybody about you because of your endurance. We're letting everybody know how you're enduring hard times, that you're persevering even though it's not easy. If you go back to Acts 17, and we don't have time to do that this morning, but I encourage you to do that this afternoon, you, you read about Paul's first missionary journey, and he planted the church in Thessalonica, and immediately there was persecution, so that he had to flee and go to Berea. And then he went to several other cities and towns until he finally made it to Corinth. Probably he was in Corinth when he wrote this letter back to them. So he received news that the persecution was still going. And so even though he had to flee, and he fled not for his own safety, we know that in Paul, he fled for the Thessalonians' safety, right? He fled because he wasn't making it any easier for them, and so he fled to Berea. But he hear, gets word that, well, the persecutions are still going. And so he writes this letter to them. He says, I just want you to know, when I landed in Berea, I boasted about you. I said, I preached the word to you, to them, to the Thessalonians, and... And they believed, and there was a great persecution, and they still believed. They kept on believing. They endured, even though their lives were at risk. And every town that Paul went to, he told the town the same thing. Have courage. Believe this. The Thessalonians did. And so Paul starts in his encouragement to them saying, look, I want you to know that you're an example to the other churches. You're an example that, that I'm holding up to the world to say, you know, this gospel is worth suffering for. The Thessalonians are doing it. How about us? In Abu Dhabi or Dubai or in the UAE or in the Middle East or anywhere, wherever God calls you are, you, are you so convinced of the gospel that you're willing to suffer? Because that, that is a powerful testimony powerful testimony to the veracity of the gospel and the goodness of God. Today, I want to remind you, as Paul did the Thessalonians, by way of encouragement of the certain return of Jesus Christ. He's coming back. I know it's been 2,000 years. It's been a long time. Where is he? He's coming back. At a time known only to the Father, he's coming back. And it's, it's our confidence in the return of Christ as God gave the Thessalonians and the church. That's what will enable us to endure through suffering. See, the gospel is very clear. Jesus does not mince words. He actually warns us that it's going to be hard. He says, if you're going to follow me, you have to take up your cross, deny yourself, and die every day. Jesus calls many people to actually give their lives proclaiming the gospel in death. And he calls all of us to give our lives proclaiming the gospel in life. So whether you live or die, we are to hold fast to Christ, hold fast to his gospel, to proclaim it with confidence and with assurance that Jesus is coming back. Jesus, in John 15, this is the night before he was crucified, and he's got his disciples and he knows he only has a little time left to share with them what they're going to endure uh, after his crucifixion and resurrection. And they don't even know, they can't put all the pieces together. But in John chapter 15, verses 18 through 21, Jesus says to his disciples, and to all of us, actually, it's been preserved for us, this conversation with the disciples, because what he says to them is also for us. This is what Jesus says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they also will persecute you. If they kept my word, they also will keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. 
If you're discipling somebody in the faith right now, it would be wise to share this with them early in their journey with Christ. If you're new to the faith, if you've just been saved, born again, this is an important doctrine that you need to know that the world will hate us because the world hates Jesus. And the more you identify with Christ, the more the world will hate you. There are some Christians in the world that are not hated by the world because they don't identify closely enough with Christ. But Jesus is clear. Therefore, what do we do with this? This is scary. Who wants to be hated? Who wants to be persecuted? Who wants to suffer? There's nothing good about suffering for suffering's sake. Suffering is only good if it's for Christ's sake. By way of persecution. But how can we be ready for this? Are you ready for this? And when persecution does come, and God may very well call some of us in this room to give our lives for Christ. I don't know. God alone knows. But if he did, would you be ready? I'll be honest with you, I don't know. I don't know. I, I would have to just entrust myself to the grace of God in that moment. I don't think we can prepare ourselves for that. But even on those lesser experiences of suffering, are you ready? And if you're receiving any persecution right now, maybe, maybe you've lost family members relationally because of your faith. Maybe you've lost friends and co-workers. Maybe you've lost a job. Maybe you really are being persecuted right now in very real ways, and it's hard. I want you to be encouraged. How do you endure? The question about can we be ready is not even relevant because you, you're already in the midst of it. So how do you endure a suffering of persecution that's happening right now? Well, today's text gives us three exhortations that will answer these questions for us. It's, this text will, will show us three ways that we can be ready for persecution, and when persecution comes, how we can endure persecution. This is so important for us to hear and to cherish. Number one, we must put our trust in God. We must put our trust in God that he will right all of the wrongs when he comes to judge the world. This is where the, the final judgment is such an important doctrine because it contextualizes our, our now. It, it puts into perspective our present circumstances. Everything that has ever happened will rise or fall at the final judgment. Everything that you've gone through, everything that you've suffered will, will, will be vindicated. You'll be relieved and rescued at the final judgment. The Thessalonians' enduring faith in the face of suffering actually bore witness to their confidence in two things. And I'm going to unpack this for you, but what you need to know is their endurance actually bore witness to the gospel and their confidence in two things. Number one, that God will inflict vengeance on those who persecute them. Therefore, they don't have to seek vengeance themselves. They entrust that vengeance to God. And secondly, they endured through their persecution because they believed that God would grant relief to them for their suffering. In other words, they believed that God would right all wrongs, that we don't need to right all wrongs in the here and now. We can actually endure in unfair, unjust, un unrighteous suffering. And the unrighteousness is not attributed to us, but to those who persecute us. We can endure that. We don't need to correct that because God will. God will right all wrongs on the day of judgment. Let me break this down for you a little bit. Uh, verse 5, this is where we see Paul is affirming the Thessalonians for their testimony. That by enduring suffering, they were bearing witness. Their lives were evidence of a final judgment to come. Take a look at verse 5. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for whom you are also suffering. This is a radically difficult verse to understand. Uh, even in the Greek, it's really difficult to know exactly what Paul is trying to say. And thankfully for 2,000 years, 
Bible scholars have wrestled and debated this so that we can uh, fairly confidently uh, assert that this is what he means. And the key to unlocking this is the first word in verse 5. Do you see it? This. This. So Paul is saying that there's something going on that is providing evidence of a righteous judgment of God to come. Well, what is it that is providing this evidence, bearing witness to the reality that there is a future judgment? And that's part of evangelism, right? Letting people know that there's a future judgment to come. So what is this? Well, we see that in verse 4, if you go back up. It's the Thessalonians' steadfastness and faith in all their persecutions, in all their afflictions that they were enduring. So if we wanted to simplify verse 5, we just reread verse 4 and continue into verse 5. So let me read it to you this way. Your steadfastness, that's endurance, and your faith in all of your persecutions, in all of your afflictions that you are enduring, is itself evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Well, how does that work? How is it that the endurance of the Thessalonians bore witness to the reality of a coming judgment? Well, the logic goes something like this. If there's no future judgment, it makes no sense for the Thessalonians to continue to suffer for Christ's sake. And so as they're suffering, even the people that are persecuting them have to wonder, why are they not recanting the name of Christ? Why do they persist as Christians? It's costing them their lives. It's costing them their jobs. It's breaking apart families. It's a real affliction of suffering for Christ's sake. Why would they do that? Well, because the Thessalonians knew that there's a final judgment and they want to be on the right side of that judgment. Now, by enduring suffering, it's not a work that... that earns our salvation, but it's an evidence of our salvation. One of the greatest evidence that you're saved is you endured till the end. And it's an evidence of the gospel because no one in their right mind suffers for something that's not true. So Paul is trying to encourage them. He says, look, I'm, I'm boasting about you everywhere I go. The Bereans know all about you and all the suffering that you're going through. And I want you to know that by enduring, you're bearing witness to the truthfulness of the gospel. You, you, are, you are standing out in Thessalonica, and people are wondering why in the world you would persevere. And the way you answer that question, by continuing to endure and to always being ready to give a reason for the hope that you have, more people will come to faith, to the glory of God. So now we get to the second and third part of this. The Thessalonians believed in the final judgment. They bore witness to their belief in the final judgment. And what did they believe about that final judgment? They believed two things. One, they believed that God's vengeance would be poured out against those who persecuted them. Take a look at verse 6. Indeed, God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. Persevere, Thessalonians. The people that are making your life miserable, who have all of the power right now, they don't get the last word. They are afflicting you, but God will afflict them. If you go down in verse 8, Paul says that God will inflict vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel. And they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of God. So, so what is the affliction that God will bring to persecutors of the church? He will say, depart from me. You're not allowed to gaze upon my glory or my goodness. I, I'm going to remove my grace and my favor and my love. And you will have no part of it. And that will be an eternal destruction. Not that these people go out of existence, but they're cut off from God's goodness and God's glory and God's loving kindness and God's mercy, and God's grace, and they're left to themselves, to be fully themselves. And so Paul says, you need to remember that, Thessalonians, that God gets the last word. 
So when you're deciding which team you want to be on, whether you want to be with the persecutors who are making the life of the, the church miserable and difficult and sad and hard and heavy, remember that if you're on their team, when Jesus returns, you'll be cut off from God's goodness and glory and loving kindness and grace with them. But if you're on God's team, or better yet, if God is on your team, same thing, even though you suffer now, when Christ returns, eternal glory waits for you. Can you suffer a little now so that you can receive the weight of an eternal glory later? Pick your side. Vengeance for the persecutors. But the third thing in verse 7, relief for God's people. Take a look at verse 7. He will grant relief to you who are afflicted, as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. I love this. So the you is the Thessalonians, as well as us. That, that includes us. Paul is including himself, but more than that, Paul is thinking everyone. All of the people who proclaim Christ, who suffer with Christ, will rise with Christ physically, gloriously from the dead, and will reign with Christ, but we have to endure for Christ. That's a prerequisite. That's the evidence that your faith is real. You endure until the end. And so Paul holds this out in front of the Thessalonians. I know it's hard. And I hold this out to you. Your, your suffering for Christ is hard. And if you're suffering just a little or not at all now, God might call you to walk through deeper waters of suffering. And it's going to be hard. So you need to remember that God will make all wrongs right. He will correct the wrongs. He will bring vengeance against those who oppose him. And he will bring relief to those who belong to him. You will only be able to endure suffering for Christ's sake if you believe deeply in the final judgment. We even as Christians, we often don't like to think of the final judgment. But it's the final judgment that gives us the hope to endure. It's good and right to want God to judge evil. It's good and right to want God to make all things new. This judgment will be a judgment of vengeance for God-resistant sinners and a judgment that rescues the saved. Which means there's two reasons that we as Christians don't seek vengeance on those who persecute us. The first reason is God says vengeance is mine. And God can execute a perfect vengeance that's not sinful. It's not clouded with, with our emotions he can do it perfectly. He can bring perfect justice. So we let him do that and we don't take it into our own hands. And secondly, we love our enemies. We pray for those who persecute us so that they too might repent and be found not on the side of the persecutors, but on the side of Christ on that terrible and glorious day. Just like Paul persecuted the church and he became a champion for Christ. So that's the hope that we have even for those who persecute us. You will be ready and you will be able to endure suffering for Christ if you trust God to make all things right, to right all wrongs, to bring vengeance on the persecutors and to bring relief to his saints when he comes to judge the world. That's the first thing. Trust God. Trust God with it. He sees it. He knows it. He's in it with you. Christ suffered first and he still suffers when we suffer because we are his body. So leave vengeance to God and endure with Christ. Secondly, how can we be ready? How can we endure? Well, we, we put our trust in God to make all wrongs right. And secondly, we actively, intentionally, day by day, picture the return of Christ. I just want to ask you, how many of you, day by day, or even month by month, picture the return of Christ? How many of you have even once thought about the return of Christ? And it's how that impacts you 
in the here and now. Well, Paul encouraged the Thessalonians to endure suffering by helping them to picture the return of Christ. And as I said, this was so important to God that he, he, he front-loaded the New Testament with a promise of the return of Christ. And he's given us a description of it here, and we're going to read that in a moment. But, you know, you can go to 1 Thessalonians 4. Zechariah 14 that was read today, Revelation 19. Uh, Jesus, God has given us a variety of pictures of the same day, the same moment. Here we just get a few details. Let me read them for you in verses 6 through 10. Yes, indeed, God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed. Because our testimony to you was believed. The return of Jesus will be different for different people. And in this passage, we get a description of the return, right? Jesus is going to return with his, with his mighty angels in flaming fire. Now, the flaming fire is probably not uh, the instrument of vengeance. It's, it's probably not that Jesus is returning to set everyone on fire. It's, it's that in the Old Testament, whenever God appeared in, in time and space in history, he came with flames of fire. You think about the burning bush on Mount Sinai. Uh, you think of the top of Mount Sinai when Moses went up to meet with God. You think even of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came down and birthed the church and filled us with the Holy Spirit. It was tongues of fire. And so fire is, is, a, is language for a theophany. A theophany is, is a picturing of God or a manifestation of God in time and space and within our nature, meaning this universe. When God enters into this universe, he often comes with flaming fire. And so this is an affirmation that the Lord Jesus Christ is God himself. Uh, this is the same God who spoke to Moses from the burning bush that didn't burn. This is the same God who, who gave the law to Israel uh, from the top of Mount Sinai through Moses. This is the same God who descended in tongues of fire at Pentecost. This is the same God, the second person of this triune God, the Lord Jesus Christ, is coming back to judge. And there's going to be three groups of people that he returns to. Those who do not know God, take a look at it there in verse 8. This refers to Gentiles that have never even heard of him. Gentiles that have never heard of the God of Israel. Gentiles that have never heard, in our, in our context now, never heard of Jesus Christ. They've never even had the opportunity to reject the gospel. Because they don't know him. They're totally ignorant. Now, they know there's a God in heaven, Romans 1, but they don't know him specifically as revealed in Scripture because the church hasn't got to them yet. Now, this is a great motivation for evangelism. Look at this, that, that for this group, even though they don't know God, they have no way of knowing the gospel. They've never heard the name of Christ. When the Lord Jesus returns, he's going to inflict vengeance on them for their sin and rebellion. And they'll be without excuse because through the things that God has made, they know the power and the glory and the righteousness of God. But the, the news of salvation hasn't made itself known to them. That's our job. On the day that Jesus returns, and this is why, according to 2 Peter 3, he's delayed in returning to give everyone an opportunity to hear and then repent. But there's going to be a whole group of people that don't know what's going on, but they will receive the wrath of God on that day. So let's get the good news out to the far reaches of the world. Let's take some risk to make sure that that group is as small as possible. The second group pictured here are, verse 8 again, uh, 
those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. So when this was written, this was probably most directed toward Jews that rejected Jesus as their Messiah. But now, 2,000 years later, this group includes Gentiles who have heard the gospel and rejected it. They don't have an excuse the way the same group did. They've heard the gospel, they've heard the name of Jesus, and they've not obeyed the gospel. They've rejected the gospel. And so when Jesus comes back, again, he's going to bring vengeance on them, eternal punishment and destruction. They'll be cast away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might. So in these two groups, there's usually two reactions, either scoffing, meaning they don't believe it. If you were to tell them that there's Jesus returning, they say, well, it's been a long time. Where is he? I don't believe it. I don't believe that there's a final judgment. There's lots of people in the world like that. Uh, so they would either not believe it if you did tell them, or they would hate it. They would hate the return of Jesus because they know that with the return of Christ comes the end of all of the things that they enjoy and they'll be judged. So the, they'll either not believe it or they'll hate it. And it's the people who refuse to believe it or hate it that will be judged and found guilty by God, cast away from his presence. But there's a third group and that's us. The third group that, that we have here are his saints. Take a look at verse 10. When he comes on that day to be glorified with his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. What is a saint? If you grew up in a Roman Catholic church or have any, um, any influence there, you might think that a saint is a super Christian, somebody who's just holier than everyone else. It's not biblical. We're all saints. The word actually means holy one. And by the gospel, by God's gift of grace, he makes us holy. He declares us holy and he makes us holy. And so we are holy ones because of God's gift imputed to us and given to us. We have a new nature. We have the promise of resurrection from the dead. We are his holy ones that he purchased with his own blood. And the promise is there's this third group and we can, when we picture the return of Christ, we can rejoice. This is what we're waiting for. This is the best day of our lives. I'm sorry to tell you, your marriage or, or any other day is not the best day of your life. The best day of your life is the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're a saint, if you're in Christ, if you're a believer. And this is true whether your life is hard or easy, but it's especially true if you're suffering persecution. Oh, I just long that this would be over, that Jesus would come back and relieve me of this affliction. And in place of persecution and affliction, look what it says we have to look forward to. He says, when the Lord comes, we, he will be glorified in his saints. This means a number of things. Number, one thing that it means is that the glory that belongs to Christ, he will share with us as he raises us from the dead, if we're dead, or transforms us into his likeness if we're alive. I encourage you to read 1 Corinthians 15 or 1 Thessalonians 4, that we will be raised from the dead to be made like Christ. 1 John 3, 1 to 3. So the glory that Jesus has, he shares with us on the day that he returns. That's good news. We're going to be like Jesus in his resurrected glory physically, in fact, I would say super physical. We will be super physical, body-soul creatures. No more death, no more pain, no more suffering, no more growing old, no more sin. The glory of God manifested perfectly in us. That's something to look forward to. And secondly, which I think goes with this second part, to be glorified in his saints might mean to be glorified within the company of the saints. That is that Jesus is the firstborn from among the dead. He is the firstfruits of a great harvest. So to be glorified in the saints might be that, that when we're made like him, we're with him. And we know that that is absolutely true when it says that we will marvel at him. How many times do you wish that you could just have seen him with your own eyes, touched him with your own hands? 
You will. And he will invite you to marvel at him, to see him as he is, and to be with him forever. Therefore, we must picture this day. And if we're saints, we can love the picture of this day. For those who do not know him or those who have rejected him, when they picture this day, they either don't believe it or they hate it. And they find it really hard to picture for those two reasons. But for us, when we picture this day, we revel in it. This is the day that we're waiting for. This is the day we want. There's no day that you could plan between this day and your last day that is better than this. So come, Lord Jesus. Come today. Every day we wake up, we should be ready and hoping for the return of Christ. Oh, how good it would be if the Lord Jesus came for his church. Which means you will be able to endure suffering for Christ's sake if you love the return of Christ. When you picture the return of Christ, if you can love it, then you will be able to endure suffering. And you will love the return of Christ if you picture his return as one who is saved. Thirdly, not only do we put our trust in God to make all wrongs right, not only do we make a habit of picturing the return of Christ as saints, thirdly, we pray to be ready to endure suffering for Christ. Paul prayed for enduring faith in the face of persecutions for the Thessalonian church. As I said earlier, uh, you know, I worry sometimes whether or not I would be ready to pay the ultimate price of my life for the cause of Christ. I can't stand up here and boast that I'm ready for that. In fact, I don't know that we can be ready for that. It's, it's a gift of God's grace in the moment. I strongly believe that, that, that gives his saints the ability to give their lives for the gospel. It's not something you can train for. There's no Bible study for that. But we can pray, and we ought to pray. Take a look at verses 11 and 12. To this end, to what end? That they, the Thessalonians would endure persecution and suffering for Christ's sake. To that end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. To this end, I, I'm praying for you, Thessalonians. And to this end, we need to pray for one another. We need to pray for ourselves to be ready. And, and, and if the persecution's already started to endure... Because, you know, when we endure, God says we're worthy of the calling to which we've been called. We're worthy of the kingdom of God. And this is a worthiness that we can't actually muster in our own strength. The, this worthiness that comes by endurance is itself a gift from God. God has to give us the gift of faith. God has to give us the gift of endurance or we will not endure. We will not believe. But because God is the one who gives us the gift of faith and the gift of endurance, he also gives us the gift of worthiness by enduring through faith, through persecution. It's God alone who fulfills every resolve for good and every work of faith. You see that there in verse 11, right? I'm praying for you that God would make you worthy, and worthiness is by endurance. So I'm praying that you will endure. And secondly, that God may fulfill every resolve for good. This is an inner desire. As Christians, we should desire to do what is faithful. And so God, what Paul is saying is, I'm praying that God would give you the power to fulfill those desires. We can have the desires but do we have the strength to bring those desires about when life gets hard? No. And so we need to pray that God would give us the gift of power so that every resolve for good, that's an inner, inner disposition, would come to reality. And secondly, that every work of faith, this is an outward action, 
So those desires are translated into works of faith. Paul prayed for them, and we need to pray for ourselves because in our own strength, we can't do this. It's only by God's grace that anyone endures until the end. It's God's power alone that glorifies. It's God's power alone that makes much of Christ in me. I'm far too weak to make much of Christ. But God can make much of Christ in me. And God makes much of Christ in us, in his church. Not because we have the strength to make much of Christ, but because God's power working in us makes much of Christ in us so that we can bear witness like the Thessalonians to the world that there is a God in heaven, that there is a gospel that saves sinners, and that Jesus is coming back. Therefore, we pray. You will be ready. And you will endure suffering for Christ if you pray. As for anything in my name, and it will be done for you, Jesus said. Well, how do we know if we're asking in his name? It's according to God's will. It is in accordance with God's will that we ask for readiness and endurance in the face of persecution for Christ's sake. So when we pray that, we have 100% assurance that God will give us the power and the strength that we need to endure. But if we depend on our own strength, we cannot be certain. So we pray. And my promise to you is that if you earnestly pray this prayer, God will make you ready. And he will help you to endure. Today, countless to me, but not countless to God, hundreds or thousands or more Christians in the world will give their lives because of Christ. From before the foundation of the world, God chose today for certain saints to give their lives for the gospel. And they will endure because God will give them the gift of endurance. One day, that might be you or me. We need to be ready for whatever. And you see, if we are ready then all of a sudden, not only are we ready to suffer, but if you're ready to suffer, then you're in a position to take risks for the gospel. There, there's nothing we can't do because we have the promise of eternal life, resurrection from the dead, a coming judgment that relieves our affliction, gives us a share in the glory of Christ, and gives us a chance to marvel at his face. So what can we lose? We can go boldly if we're praying for God to strengthen us. We are called to be ready to endure in suffering for Christ. And we are called to endure if that suffering has already started. Whether it's everything that we give our lives or something much less than that, I have never dropped or spilled a drop of blood for Christ. So my suffering relative to so many saints through the ages is small. But it's still suffering, and it's still hard. All of us suffer according to God's plan for our lives. So whether your suffering is small or great, now or yet to come, we can be ready and we can endure when we put our trust in God to make all things right. When we picture the return of Christ as one of the saints, longing and praying for the hastening of that day, and when we pray that God's power would make, be made perfect in our weakness, when we ask him to make us ready, when we ask him to give us the gift of endurance, then we will be ready and we will endure persecution for his sake. I want to close by praying for you that you will be ready and you will endure if persecution has already started. And I also want to pray for our brothers and sisters around the world who will give their lives today for the cause of Christ. May they be strengthened in this hour by God's grace. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, I thank you for this encouragement from your word that we can be ready and we can endure, not in our own strength, but by your strength and power given to us as a gift. You've already given us the gift of faith to save us, and you've forgiven us of our sins. Now I pray, Lord, that you would give us the gift of endurance and readiness to suffer for the name of Christ. Lord, I pray that you would comfort all who are suffering here this morning. People who are suffering because of Christ, maybe it's relational suffering, financial suffering, maybe it's greater suffering. I also pray for everyone who's suffering um, generally for whatever reason. Uh, these same truths are applicable for, for all kinds of suffering. That Our suffering is for a time not worth comparing to the glory to be revealed to us. I pray, Lord, comfort us with these truths. Help us to trust you with our very lives and the circumstances of our lives. Help us to endure in faith the gospel. And Lord, we pray for our brothers and sisters around the world today who are suffering. Christians are suffering in small ways and in great ways. We pray for them all. You know them all by name. And Lord, you know the, the roster of names that you are asking and you will bring about your glory in their death today as they die because they're persecuted unto death for proclaiming the gospel in the name of Christ. Oh God, even now, strengthen them. Give them the gift of peace, faith, love, hope, and endurance. I might ask, Lord, that you would even open heaven to give them a visual glance into heaven, just as you did for Stephen, that they would be comforted and strengthened in their time of need. And Lord, I pray for any of us that if you have, will call any of us to such sacrifice that you would give us the same gift. God, help us. You are a good and mighty God. We long for the return of Christ. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Be glorified in your saints. Come that we may marvel at your goodness and your glory. In your name we pray. Amen.